Thank you, Snodderly family. It's always a beautiful thing to see a family singing together, and we thank you all for ministering to us in song. Please take your Bibles with me this morning as we turn together to the Gospel of Matthew. Again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are studying through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, and we find in our text this morning, we come now to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, and we will do something today that is unlike what we do most Sundays. We will take a more modest passage of scripture, four or five verses at the, at the most, and uh, we will just work through that. But today we're going to take a larger chunk uh, that is a continuous passage here. So we're going to take verse 22 down through verse 37. So join me there in God's word, and let's read a good portion of scripture here together, then by God's grace we'll walk through it this morning. Beginning there in verse 22, Matthew chapter 12, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now the Pharisees heard it and they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Verse 33 Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. And then finally, verse 37, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, speaking of words, this is the Word of God. Our title this morning is The Unpardonable Sin, or more specifically, Blasphemy Against or Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this morning in our prayer meeting just before the service, the group of men, we were talking and 
making sure we were on the same page. We knew what passages of scripture were being read. And one of the things we were talking about, one of the men said, Pastor, what, what are you preaching on this morning? And one of the comments I made to them is, if you just stick your finger in the air and say, what shall I preach week after week? The text that we have this morning is not one that you would pick to preach just on a random Sunday morning, but yet it is needful. And when you study through a book of the Bible, a book through the Word of God, you come to passages like this one that are unpleasant, but yet life-changing. So important for us to hear, to know, and to understand. But to tickle the ear, it certainly does not. Scripture makes clear that words are powerful. In fact, Jesus just concluded this section by saying in verse 37, By your words you will be justified, or by your words you will be condemned. The Bible teaches that death and life are in the tongue. Amazingly as that is, Proverbs 18 verse 22, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. And in our text here today, we see both of those truths explicitly present in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in the pages of Scripture. Looking there at verse 22, we see yet another miracle where in the life of Jesus, a man who was needy, a man who has great need, is brought to him for the purpose of saving, for the purpose of healing. Verse 22, the demon-possessed man was, was brought to Jesus, and his affliction was so great that he could not see, and he was unable to speak. Unable to see, unable to speak. This demon possession had absolute control over him, controlling his physical faculties. Well, Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. The kingdom of God is here not only through the salvation of men's souls and the making of disciples, but also through the signs that he performs, these miracles that he performs. And in one fell swoop, we see here in our passage that he casts out the demon. And in casting out the demon, the man's eyes, his blind eyes are opened and his voice is loosed so that he can speak again. This is an amazing miracle. So amazing that in verse 23, the crowd responds by asking a question. Could this be? They were amazed, and all the multitudes were amazed, and they said, Could this be the son of David? This is a verbal response. This is a, a rhetorical question. And because the crowds are responding in this way, the Pharisees continue to be threatened. They continue to be jealous against Christ and his ministry. They hear this Amazement in the voice of the crowd. Amazed, this word means to be beside yourself, unable to con contain yourself. Recently, one of my children and I were at an event, an athletic event. And there were a couple of different times throughout the event where a single action brought a, an immediate unison response from the crowd. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, a performer does something and immediately you could hear this, this, oh, you know, this, this gasp or this, response and there's no way you can manufacture that it just happens it's the human response to something that is absolutely overwhelming and amazing here we have a crowd of people who see jesus hear jesus and witness this miracle and they are unable to contain themselves they are standing in awe and wonder of jesus christ asking this question could this be the long-awaited one 
And in asking this question, could this be the son of David, they're fulfilling Solomon's principle that life is in the power of the tongue. Then also at the same time, verse 24, we see that death is in the power of the tongue by the response of the Pharisees. Look there with me. When they heard it and said that Jesus cast out devils, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Here in our passage, we see Solomon's principle, the sufficiency of Scripture. We see in our passage the illustration of what Solomon is teaching in his passage that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So much so, verse 37, Jesus again will say, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, I want to remind us this morning, our words reveal. Words, it's not about the words in and of themselves, other than the fact that our words are simply the messenger boys. Our words simply communicate what is already in the heart. When you hear the words, it's already old news. The words are simply the coffee gone cold. The words are simply just communicating what is deep down in the recesses of the heart. Our words reveal. They reveal the true state of our hearts. They reveal even our idle words we will be called to testify in regards to. Now the Pharisees' own words here reveal that they had committed the unpardonable, what is known, this is in Scripture, the unpardonable sin. Now, we've seen passage after passage where the Pharisees are speaking, but this one is different. This passage, we've come to a comprehensive point where sin has been escalating, hearts are hardening. It has come to a point to where this witness, this revelation, this divine revelation of the work of Christ is now hardening the hearts of those who are rejecting Him. Well, we see this mention of the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. So it leads us to ask this question. One of the, maybe a, if we had a Q&A, you'll hear questions like this, and admittedly so. What is the unpardonable sin, dear speaker, or the, the, so, the, the person who's brought in? Or what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? So our goal today is to maybe take a different approach to the text and just look at some signs of what it looks like to be in danger of this sin, to be committing this sin. Again, the word blasphemy is literally speaking sin. It means to slander. Thayer says this in his commentary or his dictionary. He says, it's injurious speech. It is reproachful speech, particularly against God. Strong says this, it's vilification of God. It's evil speaking or railing against God. But in our text, we see that this blasphemy is not against God or against Jesus per se. It is taken to the point of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is the slandering of the Holy Spirit. To speak injuriously or reproachfully against God's Holy Spirit. To rail on or speak against the Holy Spirit. What we see from the Pharisees as they blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this text is that their hearts and their mouths are attributing, blaspheming the Spirit by attributing the work of Christ, which is the work of the Holy Spirit using Christ, the Holy Spirit leading Him, using Him within the Father's will, partnering together with Him, and saying, this is of Beelzebub. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, friends, this morning, we will see is a grievous sin. It is a sin that cannot be forgiven. 
Now, notice here, it is conceived in the heart, verse 34 and verse 35. It is conceived in the heart. It is confessed with the tongue, verse 24. What does that sound like? That sounds like the opposite of salvation that we see in Scripture. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It's almost like the exact polar end of the uh, opposite of the, at the end of the pole that genuine salvation is, as Paul describes Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, notice here, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The reality is the words reveal what is in the heart, as we've mentioned before. We see that is true of salvation. And here we see that there's a final nail in the coffin for an un, untold number of these Pharisees, and I, the reason I say it like that is, is we don't know who all is hardened and who all is not yet. We do know certain leaders come to faith in Christ later. So it's not to say everyone who is a Pharisee uh, that has no hope of being saved, but there's a particular group here that day that the Holy Spirit inspires for us in Scripture that says, as Jesus teaches them, they have committed a sin, which is the... Uh, unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Verse 14 tells us that we've already seen this is a, an unfolding drama here that they have already begun. They went out after the miracle of the man with the withered hand and plotted against Christ how that they might destroy him. And what began there in their hearts, how they might destroy him, we're told here that Jesus' omniscience is what reveals this. Here in our text again, our text says in verse 25, but when Jesus knew their thoughts... Here we see the deity of Christ, who not only hears what men say, but knows the heart that fuels what men say. So again, coming to our text, Matthew 12, the unpardonable sin, just in summary, is to credit Satan, excuse me, credit, excuse me, to accuse the work of Christ, or particularly the work of the Holy Spirit, and saying this is of Satan, or this is Satan's work. I would submit to you that it is not something that is so much done in a single moment of time, but is the end result of a full process of continuing to reject the light of Christ. I'm going to say that again. Many people, when they consider this unpardonable sin, they think of it in a sense of terror of as, did I do it here or here or there or there, like in a single instance to where there's no coming back. And that fear is not necessarily a bad thing. We should fear sin. We should fear uh, dishonoring Christ. So I'm not mocking that at all. But the clarity that I desire to give this morning is what I believe, according to our text, is we've been walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew, is that much like apostasy or turning away from the true Gospel, or the pure Gospel, is revealed through a hardened heart, what we see here is that this is a single instance to where it's the last time that God's Spirit is striving with these individuals. In fact, this action is the one to where it's the one among many of saying no, hardening their hearts, seeing divine truth and divine revelation, hearing it, seeing the ministry of Christ and saying, that's not what he says it is. That's not what they believe it is. That is of Satan. And ultimately, a heart that is on another level that brings them to a point to where they are hardened and have no hope of being saved. Again, Genesis chapter 6, we, we are told of the days of Noah were so evil and so wicked 
that men were so hardened that God said, my spirit, spirit, Holy Spirit, my spirit will not always strive with man. Convict men of sin. The consciences of men, I will give them over, language of Romans 1, to a reprobate mind. But friends, hold on a second. When we talk about the unpardonable sin, it's not only Romans 1 that we're talking about. Or as we saw last week and as you've seen in the news all week about the Grammys last week. That could be an aspect of it. But, but this is not talking about the most heinous sins in public. This is talking about moralism. This is talking about religious people. The context here are those who are exposed to the Word of God and yet harden their hearts to the Word of God. It's people like us in the pew today, in the house of God today. The context here are religious people, but yet in their hearts, they harden their heart against the light of Scripture, the light of Christ. So what are some signs that we see about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Who are ones who are in danger of committing this unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, number one, we're going to mention these headings as we walk through the text this morning. Number one, we see in verses 23 and 24 a tenacious protection of self-interest. A, a tenacious protection of self-interest. The aim of the disciple, the true disciple of Christ, is to magnify Christ. To glorify God, as we studied earlier this morning. To live with abandon for the greater glory of God. But yet, when you're a moralist, when you're a Pharisee, there is a tenacious protection of self-interest in anyone who threatens that, whatever that is, is someone that must be done away with or ignored or hindered or slandered. In the life of the Pharisees, we see here it is jealousy against Christ. They have position. They have power. They have status. And here comes the son of a carpenter threatening to undo all that they have in the religious realm. This is jealousy, but on another level. They fear loss of power, loss of influence, loss of control. They treasure their own self-interest above the fact that this Jesus could be the Messiah. They're not hearing his word. They're making up their own rules, their own religion. They love their religion more than God. They love their tradition more than God. They love their positions more than the truth. And we see this in the fact that they have seen the greatest works that men could ever see, and yet they reject them. They hear Christ's teaching and preaching, and yet they reject it. They are consumed with promoting themselves. They are tenaciously interested in self-interest and self-preservation. Friends, we see this in how we respond to the word of Christ. When God's word, or when the, listen here, the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth, when the Holy Spirit leads us into the truth by showing us our self-righteousness or our sin, how we respond to that is very revealing. If I'm trying to save myself, or if I am proud in my works righteousness, I'm a, I'm a fifth generation Christian, or our family has gone to this church for three generations, or you're pointing to wonderful, good things, but in the place of Christ, 
Or when sin is exposed in your heart, instead of repenting of it and being pliable and soft because you have a desire to glorify Christ and to be as holy as you can be, as His Spirit works out that holiness in and you as you grow in grace, when you hear the preached Word of God or as you're reading your Bible, instead of saying, oh my goodness, God, I've grieved you here, which you, and then repenting of your sin, or by eyes of faith seeing those things, you simply cover. Don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. You harden your heart, lest your righteousness be, be shaken. To put it in summary, you are tenaciously protecting your reputation. You are tenaciously protecting your service or your ministry, as opposed to simply being pliable to the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit works in your heart, showing you Christ, you say, no. And you harden your heart against that. Secondly, we see, actually, I want to read verses 23 and 24 with our first point. And when they saw all of this, they said, could this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. This is the second miracle. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, whether it's the man with the withered hand, when Jesus is healing him on the Sabbath, they cannot compute there is no sympathy or heart for the lost or those who are broken by sin or have ailments of the flesh. They simply cannot get over Jesus. They're threatened by the Son of God. Secondly, how do we see this evidence? Are, are we in danger? Is someone on the road, someone who professes to be a Christian, but are they on the road or manifesting the fruit of this sin or in danger of committing this sin? We see speaking evil of Christ and even those who represent Christ, his messengers. Notice there verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. This is the worst thing that they can say. Beelzebub is, is the worst thing that they could think of in the moment of the flesh. Who was Beelzebub? Beelzebub is a number of things. Most literally, he is a Canaanite god. The Jews mocked Beelzebub. They called him the Lord of the Flies, literally the god, little g, the god of dung. They understood Beelzebub to be of Satan, another name for Satan, the prince of demons, the prince of the fallen angels. Beelzebub was more commonly just another name for Satan himself. And that is what makes this charge against Christ so, so shocking and so vile. And so they reject Christ, and they ascribe to him the Holy Spirit working through him to be the works of Satan. Now, we're in danger of this unpardonable sin when the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, and yet we reject it with a hardened heart, as we mentioned before, Matthew 10, 24, and also those who would represent Christ, whether it's a Sunday school teacher, a parent, or any person who is ministering in the name of Christ. Notice what Jesus tells his disciples that we've already studied, Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So he's trying to prepare them for gospel ministry, and he wants them to know, if these Pharisees are calling me this, they will call you this. And we see in a previous passage, he uses and brings in the same name, Beelzebub. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Now notice here, 
If they have called the master of the house, speaking of himself, if they have called me Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of this household? Be very careful as we think about responding not only to the word of Christ, but as we put these two passages of Scripture together and we make application for today, those who would bring you the pure word of Christ, the milk of God's word, and harden your heart against it by railing against them and calling them Beelzebub or a, a worker of Satan or even Satan himself. Be very careful. Bottom line, you could summarize it like this. Be careful how you listen. Be careful how you hear the word of Christ. If you respond in one of these ways, if you're listening to me this morning, and this is indicative of your life, friend, repent. Run to Christ. And if there's any sensitive spirit that is there or, or pliable spirit, that is a wonderful sign. That is a, a good sign of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Run to Christ, as we sang this morning. Our advocate and our friend, and I would say, while there is hope, seek the Lord while he may be found. Confess your sin. Do not allow your heart to go hardened. By the way, just as an aside, how can we pray for the next generation that are coming up in the church? among many things that we can pray for. How do we pray for the teens? How do we pray for the children? How do we pray for the least of these? Here's a key thing we can pray. Lord, keep them soft to your word and your spirit. We all know that life has a hardening effect as we grow older and older, but here we're talking about spiritually, not just physically. As we pray for the membership of this church, as we pray not only for everyone, it's a great thing to pray for everyone. Just as an aside, as we pray for the next generation, Lord, keep them soft to your teaching, to your spirit. When your spirit exposes their sin, Lord, may they repent and run to Christ, not grow hardened against the things of Christ. A third thing that we see, it's when we are blinded in sin, when someone is in this state, they don't think clearly. They make illogical charges or just illogical conclusions against Christ. And we see Christ responds with logic right back. They are illogical. The way of Christ is logical. Or you could say there's a mind of the spirit and there's the mind of the flesh, right? The mind of the flesh that is hardened in sin makes ludicrous emotional claims, as we'll see here in verses 25 through 29. Notice with me in the text, verse 25, there's this description of divided kingdoms that cannot stand. Notice every kingdom divided against itself Jesus says, is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. It really points to the biblical ignorance that we have in America today that most people, when they hear this phrase, attribute it to Abraham Lincoln as if he's the source of it. It shows our ignorance just as an aside. In my study of the text, I was just thinking about it in his famous speech. It can be used, of course. But let me just remind all of us this morning, Abraham Lincoln did not inspire come up with this phrase. This is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the logic that he uses against the claim that is brought against him. Every kingdom that is divided against himself, if I am of Beelzebub, then what am I doing casting out my own if what you're saying is true? Jesus responds to these illogical charges by pointing out the fact that armies do not attack their own comrades. Soldiers do not war against brothers in arms. Armies do not attack their own cities, at least by the law of averages or reason. A kingdom that wars against itself cannot survive. 
As we look at the direction of Jesus' life, his, his words, His words, His deeds, His miracles, we see that everything within the Son of God is against the kingdom of Satan. Jesus here is, is fulfilling the law. He is tearing down the strongholds of Satan by every miracle work that He performs. And so to conclude that this is of Satan is truly to be of Satan. Verse 26, He points out, Another illogical conclusion, he says, Satan does not cast out Satan. If Satan casts out Satan, then he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now here Jesus is touching on and hitting on the fact that Satan is an able warrior. Satan is a skillful fallen angel. He's the most skillful created being that God has made. Now notice what I just said there. He is a created being. But he is a fallen, rebellious, created being. But he is created. God is greater. It's not as if Satan is God's arch enemy. And there's some kind of like good versus evil, like Superman versus Batman or anything that we could come up with. No, listen, there's just God and everything else. God that created everything else. There is God who reigns on his throne and then everything else. Underneath, listen here, his feet. There's no equals. There are no rivals. Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, notice the organization here, principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Satan is the ruler of it all in the spiritual realm of wickedness and evil. Satan tolerates no rebellion to his authority. He allows no division in his kingdom. And Jesus makes this point by saying, how illogical is that? A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan divided against himself cannot stand. So we see here Jesus simply responding to their insane hardening of heart by pointing out just logical, spiritual truth. Now notice verse 28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What Jesus says is that you can know that I am the Messiah because I'm doing everything that was prophesied that I would do. Everything that I am performing is showing that I am Lord, that I am Lord over all. And just in this miracle that he performs here in our passage, he is showing lordship over the spiritual realm by casting out the demon. He is showing lordship over the physical realm by returning the man's health, his sight, his ability to speak, a wholeness physically and spiritually to this person. He is Lord. He is Lord of all. He says, I'm not of Satan's kingdom. I'm opposing Satan's kingdom. By the way, let's just be reminded that everywhere Jesus went, he healed everyone within his sphere. End of story. No, come back in two weeks and let's verify the authenticity of this miracle. It was instantaneous. That's why everyone is amazed. That's why the word has spread. That's why these Pharisees' hearts are hardened. They have a lust to take his, his life. John MacArthur says this, and it's comfortable. He says, there comes a time when God simply turns out the lights, when further opportunity for salvation is lost forever with the rejection. And what we see here is that this is one rejection too many mixed with the words that reveal the heart. This is of Beelzebub. 
another illogical conclusion that we see here that Christ brings clarity to, just very quickly in verse 29, is that he says, How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, the security guard, for lack of better words, and then he will plunder his house? What Christ is saying here is Satan is, is the enemy of Christ. He is the strong man, and he has been bound, and he has been plumbered, plundered, exhibit A, in this demon-possessed man who is now whole. Paul picks up on this language as well as we think about the plundering gospel work of Christ, amen? As we think about Christ comes and undoes the work of Satan as he rules this present age, bringing salvation to his his people. It's all a foreshadowing of his redemptive work on the cross. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, as he's counseling the church at Colossae's heart about their salvation. He, he tells them, he says, And you have been made alive together with Christ, who has forgiven you of all your trespasses. Verse 14, Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Now notice verse 15, Christ, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over them, tri triumphing over them in it. Listen, this is the work of Christ. Before he ever went to the cross, what we see here in Matthew's gospel is he's taking the weapons from Satan. He is completely disarming Satan here and there in the physical realm, spiritual realm, natural realm. And what he's declaring through his actions and his miracles and his teaching is that your Messiah is here. And you can know it and you can rest in it. It leads us all the way to his finished work on the cross. In fact, he calls us to come to him, to be reasonable. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Friend, if you are being pricked in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, come to Jesus. Come to him as the able Messiah. Come and rest in, in him. One final thing we'll see here is a, another piece of clarity that Jesus gives to their illogical conclusions is in verse 30. Jesus says this, he says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather, notice here, gather with me scatters abroad. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's attacking empty profession and mediocre discipleship. How can we know if we're on the path of committing ultimately this grievous sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's saying one thing and doing another. It's in a sense prostituting the spiritual things of Christ for image or for morality or for appearances, but yet being full of dead men's bones. Mediocrity or complacency is soul in the hearts of men that breed blasphemy. It's a moralism that doesn't run to Christ and say, I need your righteousness, I need your grace, I need your help, I am a sinner. It's moralism that says, well, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. It's a relative comparison that says, well, I'm a Christian because I'm not like them. Or I'm not like them. It's the language of Luke 18, 9, where the Pharisee stands with the publican to his feet and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax 
collector. Here's maybe another way of looking at it. The Pharisee or the moralist cannot win people to Christ because he's too focused on keeping up appearances. Keeping up appearances. And that's what Jesus is attacking here in verse 30. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me. Notice the language of the harvest, the language of the agrarian culture. I'm sending you out. The fields are wide unto harvest. I'm sending you out to bring in others for Christ. A disciple is one who gathers for Christ. He is a reaper. He sows the seed of Scripture. He's helping. He's co-laboring with the king. There's no mediocrity in his profession. He has a zeal for the Lord, a zeal for the things of the Lord. Let me remind us here this morning, as we think about mediocrity and empty professions, Jesus is sickened by mediocrity or lukewarmness, maybe to use more biblical language. Revelation 3.16, where he makes clear lukewarm professors of empty words, he desires to dispew them out of his mouth. There are those who've lost their first love or they are dishonoring him with empty words. So friends, may we examine our professed discipleship, examine our hearts here this morning. As we conclude, I want us to look at one other passage or one other point here this morning in conclusion, verses 33, all the way down from verses 33 through 37. I want to make very practical application. How can I know that I'm in danger, or someone listening to me under the sound of my voice of this unpardonable sin. Notice what Jesus says, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Notice how he turns and gives them a title. They've given him a title, you are Beelzebub. He calls them brood of vipers. Here's just a blunt statement by Jesus that is not unloving or unkind. It's, listen, let me just remind you, facts are stubborn things. We live in an age that to speak facts at times says, no, that's unloving. It's not unloving to call something what it is. Here, Jesus turns to them and calls them what they are. He says, you are a brood of vipers. In the same way that Paul calls these same individuals in the book of Philippians, they are dogs like devouring dogs in the third world who simply seeking roam about in in packs to simply devour and to tear and to kill. Here Jesus says, verse 34, You are a brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you, That for every idle word a man may speak or men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. So comprehensive is God's sight, knowledge, and understanding that not even the sparrows we saw in the Sermon on the Mount falls to the ground without his knowledge. And not even empty words that are muttered or spoken behind closed doors. Or in this context, these men are simply speaking it, most of it, in their hearts. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knowing their hearts, so comprehensive is his knowledge. As David says, Psalm Psalm 139, he says, Before I even speak the word, O God, you know it. Before it's even out of my mouth or off of my tongue. So three practical, very quick takeaways answering this question. Again, how can we know if we are in danger or on a path that is simply revealing that we are not a disciple who is 
truly trusted Christ, but we're on a path that is scary and calls for self-examination. Well, friends, let me exhort you here this morning. Examine the fruit of your life. Notice the natural analogy that Jesus gives. The fruit of a tree will be visible to all. Do not deceive yourself. When you're convicted of sin, friend, don't reason it away. Don't say, this is, I'm just like mama. Or I'm just like daddy. We're, we've always been hasty with our words, as Jesus says. Some people would say that. I just, I've always had this problem. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Jesus says every idle word will be brought into judgment. So I think sometimes we can just be quick to say, well, this is just my DNA. Not when Jesus comes in. He changes your spiritual DNA. Jesus comes in and makes the old new. He comes in and renovates. He makes everything new. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. You walk in newness of life. You have a new heart. So I say that to say, don't be self-deceived. Don't reason away your sin. In fact, let me say it maybe another way. When we experience guilt and conviction of sin, run to Christ with it. Thank God that His Spirit is at work in you. Don't see that as something to hide or to, to harden your heart against or to reason away, but say, God, thank you for showing me my sin. Father, I confess my sin. I pray that you would take away my love for my sin. But do not argue like a lawyer and explain it away. Many other excuses we could give. Friends, do not reason away your words. Do not reason away your actions. So examine the fruit of your life. Second, we see here in this passage, examine your heart. Because all of these things flow, as we've mentioned, flow out of our heart. In fact, Matthew chapter 5. In fact, turn there with me just very briefly. Matthew 15, 18. Excuse me, Matthew 15, 18. As we examine the fruit of our life and examine the, our heart and our words, because we are moralists by birth, because we are self-righteous by nature, we tend to explain away or excuse. And one of the things we do, as I mentioned a moment ago, we say, well, that's like, that's, I inherited that. Well, in one sense, that's true. We inherited our sin nature from our parents and our first parents, Adam and Eve, no doubt about that. But that's not an excuse to reason away our sin. Jesus gets, gets to the heart of the matter, Matthew 15. He says, stop pointing the finger at your spouse or your children or your co-workers and look deep. Matthew 15, 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, Notice your blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that's the context that maybe we're missing. They're being accused of what is outer sin, inner sin. And Jesus is taking the Pharisees' uh, direction to the inner man as opposed to the outer man. He says, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Here we see from the clear teaching of Christ that, friends, our sin is our own. And like Gollum and the Lord of the Rings, it is precious to us, us in our natural state. In the same way that Gollum, again, just to refer to something, Richard holds on to this amazing ring and calls it his precious, his precious. In our natural state, in our natural man, that is the way we treat our sin. And we cannot blame anyone else, but recognize this is the natural way of man. And this is why we need the grace of God in Christ. So friends, as we close this morning, looking at this very serious sin that Jesus 
clearly teaches the Holy Spirit of God preserves for us. Rejoice in the grace of God in Christ. Run to Christ. Examine the fruit of your life. Examine your heart. Examine your words and say, Jesus, I am unacceptable, but you are acceptable to God. Jesus, I am unworthy, but you are worthy. Jesus, I love you. I live for you. I respond to your word. I need your grace. I need your gospel. I'm not trying to prop up anything, oh God. I recognize my need for Christ. I respond to your word. Lord, would you continue your work in me and help me to grow soft. Help me to grow pliable. May your spirit use me and strengthen me and help me not to become hardened. The Puritans used to say the same son, the same word, speaking of son as a metaphor for the word of God, the same son that melts the snow hardens the clay. And the sad reality here this morning is that this morning, not trying to be fantastic, but according to that understanding, where some are being softened uh, and melted and desiring the beauty of Christ and seeing the grace of God in Christ, others are mocking. They're, they're, they're turning from Christ. They're being hardened to Christ. Friend, don't let that be you. Run to Christ and receive his grace and his forgiveness. Turn from your sin and rest in him and him alone. Notice here, so that your joy, for language of 1 John 1, so that your joy may be full. By the way, when you're a moralist, when you're a Pharisee, your joy's not full because you're having to keep it up. You're having to work. You're having to keep up appearances. And even when you've got your A game going on, there's no joy in that. But our joy is full in Christ. Confess your sin to Christ so that your joy may be full. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it is a mirror that confronts us. And Father, I speak for everyone in this room this morning and just say, God, we run to you. We rest in you and the finished work of your Son. Father, I pray that if through the preaching of the word this morning, a heart has been pricked or opened and see their need for your salvation, I pray, Father, that they would look to Christ and live. They would come to one of us here in just a moment. We could reason with them from the scriptures and guide them and show them your glorious truth. Father, as a church, we pray that here at Grace, you would continue to keep us soft and pliable. That we would have a heart that every time we come before the word, it's, Lord, teach us. We want to learn. We want to obey. Teach us, Lord. We want to understand so that we can live. Father, use us for your glory so that we can expand your kingdom. Not, not unto us, O oh Lord, be the glory, but unto you and you alone be the glory. Father, keep us right there in that spirit, the spirit of the psalmist in Psalm 115. We'll trust you to do your good work in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.